I've been in situations where I did outdoor crusades with over 10,000 there. I've preached in churches in America with hundreds, if not thousands of there, small numbers than that. But I've said it many times before, in all of those opportunities, I'd rather sit around that table at A4J than any place I've ever been. My mission partner in America is a guy named Ken Gallion with Call to Africa. And he and I met Andre in 2016. And that was through the dot connecting of a man named Norman Schaefer. He was the guy with the gray beard there in, uh, in, the, in the video. Norman introduced us to Andre and the rest has become history. Everything you do in Africa through our partnership at Leaders Building Leaders is only possible through our connection with strong partners. And it, it's my joy to be able to share one of those strong partners with us today. Andre is gonna come, share a bit of his story, a bit of the A for J story, which is an incredible story, and uh, how God called him into that ministry and the school of discipleship there. And I have seen with my own eyes, through you helping send me, my own eyes I have seen, young men, and adult men and women who have had a sordid past, their life's a train wreck. Not all of them, but most of them. And how the gospel transformed their lives. And see with your own eyes the power of the gospel. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. Hallelujah. Underwood, give a warm welcome to Andre as he comes. As you will be able to tell from his accent, he's not from around here. But you'll be able to understand him well. Ken and I have been trying to teach him redneck terminology, and he's getting well there. But uh, he, these are good people. He's nervous speaking to an American church. This is his first trip to the USA. He was scheduled to be with us earlier, but he had ran through... Uh, bureaucratic uh, uh, American government bureaucracy and passport, not passport, but visa issues. But now the Lord's brought him here. So I want you to hear him. You don't have to be afraid of these people. They're good people. Share your story with them. <laughs> Pastor Doug, thank you so much to you and your wife and your leadership. Um, your church and the congregation. This is a glorious uh, privilege for me and an honor to come and share. Um, let's just pray. Father God, I, I praise you and I worship you and I glorify your holy name. There is none like you. Father, may we be touched by your word this morning. It is my prayer that through this testimony, people will praise your name and glorify your name. And that your name will be made big and great amongst the nations. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. It has been mind-blowing coming to America. Everything here is just Bigger and bigger and bigger. I, um, I'm not one who knows much about cars. Way, yesterday he got the experience of the Iron Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm not one to, to know much about cars, and I, I said to my wife, we, we adopted a 17-year-old girl about a year ago, and she loves cars, and her favorite car is a Nissan GTR. And I thought, well, to find mutual ground with this girl, I better start knowing things about cars. And I said, well, I'm going to like a Ford Mustang. That thing looks cool. And everywhere where we drive here, I'm seeing Ford Mustangs. In South Africa, they're few and far apart. And then Ken Gallion said to me, oh, my son Clint said that you need a car to drive around here, so he's going to loan you his Ford Mustang. I was like, oh, my soul. And then I went to this uh, football game yesterday. Now, I've been to the Springboks playing against New Zealand, the All Blacks, in a game called rugby, and that's phenomenal. But what I experienced yesterday... That's an event like I've never experienced in my life before. The people, I mean, our biggest stadium takes 75,000. This is 101,000. And they're shouting and the lights and the music. And Auntie Barbara was like, you ain't enjoying this? And I was like, I'm so overwhelmed right now. I'm enjoying it. I'm just overwhelmed. And then these jets came flying over. We only have four. And it wasn't minutes and then the pilots came walking in and I was like, did they park them out back here? <laughs> it, was, um, it was phenomenal. But um, I want to I read to you um, out of Genesis. Genesis 12 uh, from verse 1. Genesis 12 from verse 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your relatives, and your father's home, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. And I will give you many descendants, and they will become a great nation. And I will bless you, and, your, and I will make your name famous, so that you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you, but I will curse those who curse you. And through you, I will bless all the nations till there. Many people say, do you guys have lions roaming the streets in Africa? No, we don't. Depends where you live. Just before I got you, about two weeks ago, a couple of lions, well, when we say couple, that can be two or five in South Africa. Uh, escaped from the Kruger National Park and were literally roaming the streets in some towns. But one man who, who, who had an encounter with a lion many years ago was a missionary by the name of David Livingston. David Livingston was 10 years old and he could already recite Psalm 119. He was running through the, the cotton mill factory and he was taking these strings through the cotton machine and he'd balance his Bible on the machine and he would read and he would study. David Livingston eventually came to Africa as a missionary sent by the London Mission Society. And what drew him were the stories of Robert Moffat, the missionary in Kuruman, South Africa, who would talk about villages where there was smoke. And if there was smoke, there would be people. And that drew David Livingston. And on his way down to Africa, it would be a three-month trip on a ship. 
the, 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 the sails came down in a, in a severe storm and the ship drifted off to Rio de Janeiro where he found the drug called quinine, which is actually what you use to fight off malaria. And he would use that for many years in his trips in Africa. I mean, just God's sovereignty, you know, that ship veering off Rio de Janeiro and he, he gets this drug and he's able to use it. He got into Cape Town and the Mission Society said, you wait in Cape Town. And when they eventually got there, Livingston was already in Kuruman. Not many people could work with David Livingston. And when they told him to wait in Kuruman and they got there, he was already gone. And he, he had an encounter with Buffalo and he was mauled by Buffalo. He had an encounter with a lion on his first trip and it broke his arm. A chief asked him to get rid of a lion that was killing their cattle and I don't think David Livingston was a very good shot. The lion got hold of him. And for the rest of his travels to Africa, he would need to do it with one arm that pretty much wasn't working. But why did he do that? What drove David Livingston to come to Africa in a century where missionaries would literally put their coffins on the ships with them. Or Hudson Taylor going to China, arriving in the Boxer Revolution, climbing off the ship and literally seeing blood flowing the streets. Could it be that text? Could it be that text, leave your country and your relatives, your father's home? I've traveled to 17 different countries and many of them I've been to more than once. Egypt, Uganda, Zimbabwe, Zambia, Lesotho. I want to tell you that we don't do missions for the tourist aspect of it. Being in the Iron Bowl, that was cool. But I'd much rather be with my daughter Jubilee, whose birthday will be on the 9th of December, and I'm going to miss it. I hate leaving my wife and my family. Especially now that we're living on a farm in South Africa where farm murders are quite prevalent. I don't like being harassed at roadblocks or at customs. My underpants were tossed over the airport in Cairo once. I don't like being asked to pay bribes at roadblocks in Zimbabwe. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. So I pack Bibles on the dashboard now. And then when we get pulled over, I'm like, I don't have money, but I have a Bible for you. I don't know if that's a bribe, but <laughs> I don't like sitting cramped up in aeroplanes for 9 to 16 hours. A bathroom at 24,000 feet is not always so nice. I don't like layovers. I don't like missing flights. I don't like cheap hotel rooms with cigarette burns on the bedding. And I don't like sleeping on the floor in the mountains of Lesotho with three disc lesions. I don't like being snuck into a car with my blazer over my head in Pakistan. I don't like being enticed by drugs and prostitutes in Vietnam and in China. Michelle from Gillam Springs Baptist Church, I don't think she liked it when she broke her foot in the mountains of Lesotho two months ago, sharing the gospel in villages. I didn't like it when I was in India and I saw human bodies burning and that ash being blown up into my face in Varanasi. Missionaries, both short-term and long-term, 
We do this because we want to fulfill the Great Commission. We do this because we feel called and compelled by the words in the Bible, by God's Word. And we feel that those words are important. We do it because we believe that the Bible makes the Great Commission binding on every single believer. We do it because Jesus makes alive what he's dead, and I'm a testimony of that. Do you know why I couldn't be here in February? Because when I applied for my visa, it asks a question, have you ever used drugs before? And I looked at that question and I was like, well, I can lie about this or I could be truthful. And I said, yes, I did. And they asked me about that and they made me jump through so many hoops. And I said, man, that was 22 years ago when I was in university. And it cost me a lot of money. But you know, because of that delay, I met a young girl by the name of Elaine. I was angry. I was like, Lord, why is this happening? I was honest. I was truthful. But then I met a little girl called Elaine. The police phoned me. And I met her at McDonald's. And um, she's a 13-year-old girl who was being raped on a farm just outside of Kimberley. And I went home to my wife and I said, Andriette. And as I started to tell her Elaine's story, she started crying. She said, Andre, we can't take in another child. We have six children. She said, we can't take in another one. And I said, well, isn't this maybe the Lord reminding of us of that picture that you drew in 2012, where you drew everything that's on this farm right now, and up there in the corner, there was a building that she drew, and it said orphanage. I said, isn't it time? If that visa wasn't delayed, Grace Haven would not have been built. Elaine is with us now, and she is safe. She's 13 years old, and she's only just started grade one. Tamron is in Grace Haven as well. And next year, we're getting our third little girl, also 13 years old, been sexually abused, grade one. One of my young men that I've been mentoring, Marvin, he's getting his BTH degree now in December. He used to be a little druggy as well. Oh, God changes lives. Marvin's daddy died in that time while I was waiting for the visa and jumping through all those hoops. We were able to be there for Marvin. And then my son, Nathan, he's my wild at heart son. When I say wild, I mean wild. He had to have an emergency procedure where his appendix had to be removed. And I was able to be there for Nathan. And on the way home to the farm, 7.30 at night, it's dark, I said to Nathan, you'll be fine, you're good now. Yeah, I get a message on my phone, your visa's been approved. I was like, Lord, you are so in control. And I'm sorry that I doubted you. And I knew then why God had been keeping me back. But let's allow the Bible to tell us more. You see, when God created everything, after, after every day of creation, God looked at what he had made and he was like, it is good. It is good. Everything was good. And then in Genesis 3, we see the fall of man. And we see the flood and then we see the Tower of Babel. 
At the, at the Tower of Babel, we see how God distributes the nations. If you ponder on the nations, ethnic people groups, where did that originate from? It's the Tower of Babel. And we see these nations being scattered out across the planet. And then God goes and he does the Abrahamic call. And he says to Abraham, he says, leave your country, your relatives, your father's home, and go to a land that I'm going to show you. You see, God was raising up a nation that, would be, that, he would, that, that, that he would reveal himself unto, that would know him, and that nation would be the nation that will reach all those nations. We look at David and Goliath in 1 Samuel 17, 46. I'll read it to you. This very day, the Lord will put you in my power, David says. I will defeat you and cut off your head and I will give the bodies of the Philistine soldiers to the birds and animals to eat. Then the whole world will know that Israel has a God. That's missions. In the Psalms, Psalms 22, 27, all nations, ethnic people, groups, tribes, all nations will remember the Lord. From every part of the world they will turn to me. All races will worship me. In the prophets, Isaiah 6, 3, nations will be drawn to your light and kings to the dawning of your new day. Isaiah 6, 8, then I heard the Lord say, whom shall I send? Who will be our messenger? I answered, I will go send me. Hosea 2, 23, I will say to them, which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Malachi 1.11 From the rising of the sun, even unto the going down of the same, my name shall be great amongst the Gentiles. And in every place incense shall be offered unto my name, and a pure offering, and my name shall be great amongst the Gentiles. See, the Gentiles have always been part of God's plan. Always. And Israel was the agent that God was going to use to reach them. God even placed Israel in such a beautiful strategic place. If you were going to travel from North Africa to Asia, you'd need to go through God's people. Or from Asia, Europe, Middle East, you'd go through God's people. And what would those, those Gentiles see there? What would those pagan nations see there? The worshipping of the one true God. Yeah, there was a plan. The institute of marriage, where pagans would be burning their children, offering their children, numerous wives, the institute of marriage. One man loving one woman and the institute of family. And they're worshipping the one true God. Were they always obedient? No. We see that in the story of Jonah, for example. You better be careful. God will send a whale to Alabama and come sort you out. <laughs> We shoot over to the New Testament. It doesn't stop 
Missions is throughout the Bible, and that's how we should be reading the Bible, with that missional mindset. In Matthew 24, 14, listen to this. This is profound. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony unto the what? Unto the nations. Ethne. Ethnic people groups. And then this blows my mind. And then the end shall come. Wow. Before I leave on a mission trip, I... I say the important things to my wife. Baby, I love you. That's the first thing you say. Then I usually say, remember to lock the doors. Please don't call me if there's problems, but if Nathan's naughty, by all means call me. Five times before Jesus' ascension, he emphasizes the importance of us as his followers, as his disciples to go. And be his ambassadors. Matthew 28, 19. Go and make disciples of all nations. Mark 16, 15. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Luke 24, 47. And that repentance and remission of sins shall be preached amongst all nations. John 20, 21. As the Father has sent me, so too I send you. Acts 1.8 But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in both Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You know what's interesting is that you will receive power of the Holy Spirit and you will be my witnesses. When the Holy Spirit is thriving within you, you will be a witness. You will be a witness. So considering Matthew 24, 14, let me read that to you again. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony unto all nations and then the end will come. We should say to ourselves, well, how are we doing with that? If that mandate is upon us like it was upon Israel to represent God and reach the nations and then the end will come, well, how are we doing? Because the end ain't here yet. Well, it feels like it. It's coming close, but it ain't yet here. So we should be saying to ourselves, well, how many nations are there? How many ethnic people groups are there? How many tribes are there? And if we've been called to reach them, how are we doing? 7.8 billion people on the planet at the moment. 16,591 estimated people, groups, tribes. 6,741 of those tribes have not yet heard the name of Jesus. That's how we're doing. That's how we're doing. That's 3.14 billion people, 42.2% of the world's population, do not know Jesus. 3.05 billion of them are in what's known as the 1040 window. That's stretching over North Africa into the Middle East. It's probably the most difficult place to reach people and reach the tribes. You know that there's 2,445 unreached 
tribes, people groups in India alone. That's just in India. There's one missionary for every 179,000 Hindus. There's one missionary for every 405,000 Muslims. That's how we're doing at the moment. Folks, we, we are God's plan A. And David Platt says, there is no plan B. And we need to embrace that. We need to understand that. Nowhere in my Bible do I read that angels are going to fly around at the end and this is what's going to happen and then everyone's going to know. No, my understanding is that the Great Commission is binding on every believer. And if you say that I'm a believer, I'm a disciple, I'm a pupil of Jesus Christ, then it is binding on you and it is binding on me. People need help. People need hope. Got one man at our Bible school, Joshua. I saw how Jesus changed his life. Joshua, Joshua used to get so drunk, he would get home and climb under his mattress. Not the sheets. Under the mattress. And I saw Jesus change his life. And today, Joshua is our African director. I think of Geraldine, who was dropped off at an orphanage at the age of six. Today, she serves Jesus and she's my secretary. I think of Lydia, who's in a wheelchair with us. When she was a little baby, her mom and her dad got into a fight and her father took a knife and stabbed her in the back. She's been in a wheelchair ever since and she is the life and the party at our Bible school out on that farm. I think of a young lady who came to us, her name was Zalris. Zalris came to, to Africa for Jesus and she was living with her boyfriend Mark and they were weed smokers. And by the revealing of truth, truth sets free, we saw Zalris's life change. And Zalris broke up with Mark and she finished her discipleship year. She went back home to a place called Camus in the Northern Cape of South Africa. And while she was there, she was organizing women's groups, women's meetings. She was preaching. She was on fire for Jesus. And she sent a message to our member care agent, Auntie Nikki. And she said, oh man, Mark's bothering me the whole time. We're no longer together, but he's always mean. He's trying to get me back. She said, look what he sent me. And the last message she received from Mark was, you will die with your God. Man, the next morning I got a phone call and... Um, Mark and a 14-year-old accomplice walked into Zalrisa's house at 4 a.m. in the morning, found her mom in the kitchen, stabbed her nine times and killed her. Walked through to Zalrisa's bedroom and stabbed her 21 times. And Zalrisa died in front of her five-year-old son, Jade. But listen to this. Can you see God's sovereignty? Zalrisa far from God, living in sin, God knowing what's going to happen, intervenes here, do you know what the definition is of a martyr? It's someone who dies because of their obedience and belief in Jesus Christ. Zalrisa died a martyr. And I praise God that he stepped into her life at just the right time. I grew up in a nominal Christian home. 
The first bad images that I ever saw in my life were out of my father's cupboard. We grew up lower middle class or upper poor. (laughs) My mom would buy me soccer boots that were two sizes too big for me because they had to last me three years. And I was a good soccer player. I think I would have played a lot better if I had the right shoes. I was asked to leave school in grade nine because the police had an exhibition on drugs and I stole the drugs off the table. At university, I used drugs and I became a varsity dropout. But I can remember, I can remember walking home, hung over from class, and I would be preaching to trees. I can remember three times I said to my mom, Mommy, bring me the forms from the Anglican church because I want to become a priest. God reminded me that stuff. God God was after me and I was just so disobedient and I was just so running from him. How I didn't die in those years is just his mercy and his grace, man. You know, I missed the bus three times. I don't know if it was going to be a fourth time. I don't know if it was going to come past me a fourth time. At 26, God called me. I was invited to go to church and I took my girlfriend with and we went and sat in a charismatic church. And man, that dude was preaching. And I remember sitting next to Elise and for the first time, I think I felt God talking to me. It wasn't an audible voice. It could just as well have been because I heard clearly there, this is not the woman you're going to marry. You're going to marry Andriette. And I went home after that and I said to Elise, I said, Elise, I think God has told me to break up with you and marry Andriette. That didn't go down well. (laughs) Andriette and I got married and we had three of our own children and the Lord has allowed us to adopt three more. We have six children. And I was a professional photographer and I remember God calling us. And boy, did he call us. We started in tents next to a river. We started by feeding people and clothing people. I had no theological training. I had no theological degree. I just had a love for Jesus who had changed my life. I remember we moved from the tents into a school building and a a friend of mine came and he gave me a, a box, an ironing box. And inside I was like, man, we actually do need an iron. Thank you very much. He's like, my friend, open up the box. And when I opened the box, it was 250,000 rand. And he said, my dad says, launch your ministry. We were blessed with a 270-acre farm. Just given it. And I can, I can remember seeing this land. I was like, Lord, how are we going to put buildings on it? And a friend of mine told a guy who was into construction about us and what we'd been doing and the work we were doing. And this man has choppers. He flies around with, in a helicopter. You don't get an appointment with him. He phones me. He says, my name's Dion Duplessis. I've heard what you're doing. And um, come and see me. And this is my personal number. Save it. And I walked into his office. And he said, we're going to break down a store. We're going to refurbish it. We're going to come put it up. We're going to send you trucks. We're going to send bricks. I never met this guy in my life. I'm sitting in his office. And I'm just crying. I'm crying. I'm crying. And I saw God raise up buildings on a piece of land through people I've never met before. That's the God that we serve. 
Today we have a mission base with over 50 full-time people there at any moment, any given time. We run this gap year. We have a school for pastors. We have the Global Leadership Fund that helps people get tertiary education who would never be able to afford it. We have Grace Haven, this home for vulnerable teenage girls. We have the School of Missions starting with hopefully American youngsters who are going to be coming to us to be trained in missions. If you can't make it with me on a farm for three months, you ain't going to the Middle East. I'll tell you that. We have schools in Lesotho, Malawi, Zimbabwe. We have students in the Ukraine, in Canada, in Vietnam, and Cambodia. Folks, I had no degree. I had a background of drugs. I was a university dropout. If God could do that through me, this imbecile, what can he do through you? Every single one of us sitting here is called to be a part of God's mission. We are not all called to be missionaries. I get that. But we are all called to be part of God's mission. He's on a mission. Paul Washer says it this way. He says it's like a, a man going over a cliff or down a pit and he's tied to a rope. John Piper says you're either going or you're ascending or you're disobedient. Choose. And Paul Washer says that as that man's going over the cliff or going down that pit and he's tied to that rope, he's the goer. And if you say I'm the sender, he says, show me the blood on your hands from holding that rope. Wow. See, today I want you to make a commitment that I'm going to join God's mission. And that can be through praying. It can be through going, sending. Man, you've got to sort that out with God. But we are all called to take upon us that mandate, the great commission of reaching unreached people. And yes, it's in America. It's in your Jerusalem. And it's in Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. Folks, it's, it's everywhere simultaneously. And the churches that are doing that are the ones that flourish. I'll close with this story. Pastor King Gallion was telling me that he thinks it's David Cofield who said the words, on the wings of obedience, God will bring revival. If you're obedient to God, if you love God and you love people, he's going to revive your life. If you and your wife are loving God and loving people, he's going to revive your marriage. He's going to revive your family. He's going to revive your church. We need to become mission-minded and obedient to his word. When I was a photographer, I always used to end up with this one minister at weddings. And he always used to tell this one story. The story goes like this and then I'll finish. An old man was walking through the streets of a town in Europe and he came across this, this cathedral and he peered into the cathedral and in front he saw this beautiful big organ. And as he walked in and was about to take his seat behind the organ, the caretaker of the, of the cathedral said, Sir, what are you doing? You can't just come in here and start playing this organ, and he said, man, I'm an old man. Please forgive me. I know how to play the organ. Just grant me this opportunity. 
And through long discussion and debate, the, the man said, it's fine, but I'm going to stand right here and watch you. And this old man started playing the organ. And the sounds that started coming out of it were unlike any sound that people had heard before. People were peering in. People were coming in and sitting down and listening to this. And he was playing and he was playing and pulling and I don't know how that stuff works. But he was doing all that stuff and building it up to this huge crescendo and then... And the old man looked at me, uh, the, the caretaker looked at the old man and he said, Who are you that you can play this organ like this? We've never heard sounds coming out of this organ like this before. And he said, You see the name on the organ here? Mendelssohn? I'm Mr. Mendelssohn and I made this organ. Folks, if you want to see the best come out of you, let the one who made you bring it out of you. God's on a mission. And he's invited us to be a part of that mission. And I cannot see any greater opportunity than serving God and representing him in this lifetime to share his glory amongst the nations. Thank you and God bless you.